Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. But before we start reading in Haggai, I want to talk about something that happened in the nation of Korea in 1907. In the 1860s, the very first Western missionary made his way into the largest city in Korea at the time. He was a Welshman by the name of Robert Germain Thomas. And he had come actually out of another Welsh revival. Last week we talked about the Welsh revival that happened in 1904. There had been something very similar that had happened in the same country in 1859. And Robert Germain Thomas is one of hundreds of individuals who were sent out as missionaries because of that revival. And he goes to Korea. And he goes to pass out Bibles and preach the gospel, but he knows that when he does so, he's taking his life into his own hands, because as the law goes in Korea in the 1860s, if you pass out Bibles, you can be executed by decapitation. So as a matter of fact, Robert Germain Thomas is captured by the authorities, and he is actually executed in 1866. And all of you are thinking, well, the other stories were exciting. (laughs) This one doesn't end the way. It's, we're not done. He was executed, but not before the Holy Spirit had started to actually do something that no one eventually could stop. So he goes, and he's the first in a wave of missionaries who begin to make their way to this nation of Korea, whereas up to this point, no church had actually begun. But these missionaries come, and they start planting these small churches, but the work is really, really hard, and it's really slow. So the missionaries start calling these prayer meetings where all of them will gather together. Sometimes they would gather with their congregations, and they would begin these prayer meetings. And during these prayer meetings in the early 1900s, another young missionary is prompted by God to do something really interesting. He was convicted of a very particular sin inside of his heart, and the Holy Spirit told him, the next time you have a service with your Korean brothers and sisters, you need to stand up behind the pulpit, and you need to publicly confess your sin. So this pastor got up on that Sunday morning, and he confesses that he hates the Korean people. He confesses the sin of racism. And in response, that Korean congregation begins to break down, and they begin to publicly confess their hatred of the Western missionaries. (laughs) It was mutual. It was exciting. Something really incredible began to happen in that large city in Korea. That public confession of sin from both the Koreans and the missionaries sparked something that the Holy Spirit was doing. And this wave of preaching and of public prayer and confession began to sweep through this giant city in Korea so that by 1907, tens of thousands of Koreans who lived in the city were saved and the very nature and structure of that city began to change. And in fact, it changed so much that they began to call it the Jerusalem of the East. It's really quite something. Like we mentioned last time, as you read stories of these revivals and renewals, these interesting things happen inside of them that can really only happen by the work of the Holy Spirit. So one of the stories that comes out of this is in one of these meetings where there's prayer and confession, a Korean Christian stands up and he confesses the sin of being the man who killed Robert Germain Thomas. He's the one who swung the sword. I confess the sin of killing my brother in Christ. Well, what had happened after that was this. 
Well, Robert Germain Thomas had a Bible with him when he was executed. His executor took that Bible, tore out all the leaves of the Bible, and used it to wallpaper his house. And over the years, he began reading the Bible, and he came to faith in Jesus Christ. you got to be careful who you kill and what Bible you steal, right? It's amazing. So God does these incredible things. Tens of thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The nature of an entire city changes it becomes known as the Jerusalem of the East. The modern-day name of that city now is Pyongyang. It's the capital of North Korea. Now, North Korea, if you did not know, and most of you are probably aware of this kind of fact, for at least 10 years now has topped the list of the most difficult places to be a Christian. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who today are suppressed and underground in their church, and they're not allowed physical Bibles. And we have brothers and sisters in Christ who, are, who, who have filled concentration camps and who memorize entire books of the Bible so they can speak Scripture to each other while they are in prison. Now, I've told this story to a couple of you a few times, and so I promise for a little bit of repetition, but... I learned something interesting a little while ago. I'm a graduate of Denver Seminary. A few years ago, Denver Seminary just had this conference. A few of us on our staff decided, this sounds really interesting. So we went up to the conference, and, and uh, one, of the, uh, one of the professors got up there and began to talk about the nature of Denver Seminary. At the time, Denver Seminary had a relationship with several, several South Korean Bible colleges, and so there are all kinds of South Korean students who were studying at Denver Seminary at the time. And it's just a kind of an offhand remark. The, the New Testament professor, he says, North Korea has to fall. Well, that's interesting. He said, I'll tell you why North Korea has to fall. Besides eating and sleeping, these South Korean students only do two things. They study and they pray for the fall of North Korea. The Christian emphasis in South Korea is profound and it's vibrant and it's full of prayer, and they are praying for their brothers and sisters in North Korea. And I think this New Testament scholar is right. With that kind of prayer, the church will remain strong and grow, and North Korea will fall by the power of the Holy Spirit. It seems small to our eyes. The life of the church in North Korea, it is hidden, it is in the shadows, but because it is the church, it is full of the Spirit of the Lord. No matter what it looks like, no matter how big, no matter how influential or lack of influence it has, it is full of the Holy Spirit. In our passage of Scripture this morning, Haggai asks his congregation if they are concerned about how small the work is seems to them. And he's going to reassure them that no matter how small it looks to them now, God's Spirit is among them, and that God will visit them again, and that the next work will be even greater than the last work. So here's a lot of what we're going to read in our passage of Scripture this morning. Haggai's congregation needs to know a few things as they press forward in God's work. And the first is this. They need to be strong. The work that God has called them to do and that they have decided to go ahead and start doing 
actually cuts against what all of their enemies want them to do. It cuts against what political power of the day wants them to do. So they're going to have to endure, and they're going to have to be strong, and they're going to have to be courageous. Their courage is going to be required for the renewal of God that he wants to do among them. So he needs them to be strong. Then we're going to discover that God says, my spirit is with you. God, God's spirit will be with them. God has actually promised to never leave them and to always be their God. And guys, God's presence, God's spirit amongst his people is always greater than whatever force claims power over the church. Okay, God's spirit is more powerful than all of that. And then God says this to his people, and it's just a beautiful moment. God says he will fill his house with his glory all over again. Lord, do it again, right? God has everything that he needs to fill his people, to provide for them, to resource them, to renew them. I think a beautiful thing happens when he promises to fill his house with his presence again. God says, and I will give you peace. I mean, what a cool thing for God to promise his people when he comes. I will give you peace. Well, let's read Haggai's sermon in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It goes like this. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What an incredible set of things. So the text begins with another chronological marker. In the seventh month, on this day of the month, the Lord came to Haggai and says, I want you to talk to these people again, and here's what I want you to say. Now, if you do a little bit of the work, there's the same kind of marker at the beginning of chapter 1. And remember, Haggai has shown up to get the work restarted. They hadn't done anything for about 15 or 16 years. So Haggai shows up on a particular day of a particular month. Chapter 2 begins six weeks later. So Haggai is called back to encourage the people again. But the question that God opens with is a fascinating question, especially for his people in that situation. Who is left among you who remembers the former glory of this house? 
Is it not small now in your eyes? So the first temple that God refers to in this question is the temple that was built by King Solomon. And it was grand, and it was magnificent. It was built to the specifications that God gave Moses on the mountain. I mean, that's the temple that was built. In fact, it was covered in gold. This is a giant, magnificent thing. And you can read the, the story of the dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon prays, and the glory and the presence of God comes and fills this temple. Well, that's the temple that was completely destroyed by the Babylonians, when the Babylonians took Israel into exile. And when Haggai shows up, it's those exiles whom God has released back into Judah to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So some of those people who had seen Solomon's temple are back now again to help rebuild the brand new temple. But here's the problem. Here's the catch. What we have now is a much smaller foundation than what used to be. Some of these people saw what used to be, and they see this smaller foundation, they know this is going to be tiny compared to what we saw. There are chances are that the people who are there who didn't see the former temple can see the larger foundation around them, and they realize we're building something really small here. So this is a real issue for them, as a matter of fact. Now, if we go back into the historical books, Ezra and Nehemiah, they tell the same story that Haggai and Zechariah do, but through the history of it. I want to read this moment at the end of Exodus, or excuse me, Ezra chapter 3. It's only four verses long, but the way the Old Testament does is they are four very long verses. But that's okay. You guys can keep up with me. Here's how this story goes in Ezra chapter 3. And when the builders laid the foundations of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures toward Israel. He brought us back. We're rebuilding the temple. Let's sing. Let's worship. This is good stuff. And all the people shouted with a great shout while they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. They come back and they begin the work of renewal that God wants to rebuild the temple and worship and sacrifice and rebuild the culture that God wants them to. But there is this confusion, there's this difficulty, there's this pain inside of them. It's small. There's very few of us. This is actually something that we're frightened by. You see, it is this moment in the book of Ezra when the work stops. The very next chapter is the story of their enemies who hear this great shout. They find out what's going on. They write the letter to the brand new Persian king. The brand new Persian king writes his letter back. And he says, you guys need to stop this. We can't have you rebuilding your temple. And that's the point at which the people of Israel go, you're right, we need to stop. So then God sends Haggai... And Zechariah 
And we need to restart the building of the temple. You see, this is a very real dynamic for them. It seems small. It seems powerless in the face of our enemies. So we should stop. So God sends Haggai. He says, this is not the time to stop. You have to move forward. The temple is small. We are small. We should not continue. But two things are going to guide the people of God forward. As we read Haggai's sermon, they've actually restarted the work, and they're a few weeks into it. And if you can imagine the restart of, of work, there's just been rubble now for 70 years, and they have to restart. And you get started by clearing away rubble, and you get started by trying to drop the plans and find the right stuff and get a hold of the right people who can do X, Y, and Z. Six weeks later, you don't have a temple. You might have some dirt, <laughs> and you might have a handful of subcontractors, but that's all you've got. So Haggai shows back up again to encourage the people of God to continue to do things. So they need to press forward, and the people of God are going to be pushed forward by two things that we read in Haggai's sermon. And the first thought is this. This work is new, and this work will be different, but it is still the work of the Lord. This is important. Because sometimes we Christians have a tendency to think the only way things are going to move forward with God is the way they moved forward back then, right? Because we remember that, we see that, we read that, we listen to these stories and go, wouldn't it be cool if that happened again? Well, God's Spirit will pour out again, but it's going to be different. It's going to look different. The circumstances are different. The culture is different. The work of God is going to be different, but it will always be the work of the Lord. So here's something we learn about renewal in this passage. The renewal of the Spirit of God will be a fresh move of God's wisdom and of God's presence. A fresh move, a new move of the application of the wisdom of God to our circumstances. Of the presence of God to our lives and what it is that His people face now. And what it is His people need to be freed from now. And the Spirit of the Lord will move that way. Guys, it's just the fact that as we read Haggai and as we apply this to ourselves as well, we recognize conditions are different now than they were back in 1 Kings chapter 8. So it's going to be different. Conditions are different now than they were back then in 1907 in Pyongyang, so things are just going to look different. The false gods we worship now, there are differences. God needs to do different kinds of work to free his people from what's going wrong inside of us now for his renewal to work. As we even think about the stories that we have told as we have gone through this series on renewal we recognize how different every single one of these moments has been. We talked first about God stirring the heart of a young, frustrated philosopher-pastor who lived on the western frontier on the edge of mission territory to Native Americans. He was frustrated. He was in a small town. And God begins to use him to ignite a great awakening that changes an entire nation for two centuries. It's amazing what he did through Jonathan Edwards. And then God stirs a few college students who live in Oxford, and all they want to do is to gather together to read the Bible and obey it. 
<laughs> and we get the Wesleys that come out of that, right? Stunning things. We talked last week about God using a passionately praying teenager and 20-something in Wales, and 250,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ in six months, right? And then God ignites a fire of public confession of sin in Korea. And South Korea now has 10 of the world's 12 largest churches. As I think about this, there's, there's a couple of things this morning that I just kind of want to say. You guys are stuck. I've asked the ushers to lock the doors until I am done saying a few things. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. This hit me, and it wouldn't let me go this week. God is looking for young, attentive, praying Christians. God is looking for you. God is looking for young, attentive, praying Christians who are ready to obey the call of God upon their lives. God is going to use you to understand your culture and your generation so that you can be the tool for his renewal inside of this world. God is going to use you to teach us what it looks like to be faithful inside of this brand new, quickly changing world. God is looking for young, attentive, prayerful Christians. And he's going to use some of you in powerful and profound ways. Take it from me. Don't wait until you're 46 to decide to do something for Jesus. It was the young in Ezra chapter 3 who rejoiced when the temple foundations were laid. They didn't have all of that in the back of their mind. What they saw was God is doing something new. And it's a reason for rejoicing. That kind of joy, that kind of confidence needs to catch on. And God is looking for young, praying, attentive Christians. So God is going to do something. It's going to be different than it was. We have to have our hearts and minds open to what it is. But so often we have inside of our heart and inside of our reaction the same things that Haggai's congregation did. Well, how can it be us? How can it be this? We don't have enough of this kind of earthly power to make the kinds of changes that we want to have made. We get frustrated because these people do these things and we want them to do other things. You see, you and I battle with those kinds of frustrations. It's small. We're small. We're not as powerful as we need to be. So we battle with those kinds of frustrations. We struggle with what we think is sometimes the smallness of the foundation and the overwhelming size of the enemy's work. How can something this tiny do God's work now? Sometimes we wrestle with that. Well, I told you two things are going to guide the people of God forward in Haggai's sermon. The first was that even though it's different, it is still the work of the Lord. And the second is simple. Courage. Be strong. Be strong, be strong. Three times it's repeated in this sermon. And I love how it works because Haggai addresses three different groups of people. Be strong, Zerubbabel. In all of your governing, in all of your coordinating, in all of your project management, be strong. Be strong, Joshua, in all of the spiritual guidance of the people of God. I need you to be strong. And then he turns to the congregation and he says, everything that God has put in your hands to do, do it and do it with courage. Be strong. Three times. One verse later, fear not. <laughs> and then he begins to call the Lord what again? The Lord of hosts. Guys, here's another thing that happens inside of renewal. 
I think this is really important. In renewal, the people of God contend instead of accommodate. In renewal, the people of God are going to contend for the things of God instead of accommodating to the world around them. Guys, there will be no renewal where the church decides the culture is right. There will be no renewal when the church is cowardly and accommodates to what the world tells it it is supposed to believe and do. There will be no renewal there. There will be no outpouring of the Spirit of God there. It will happen when the people of God are strong and courageous and wise and winsome with the things of God. In renewal, the church does not accommodate, but it contends. You see, Haggai's congregation, as they're beginning to rebuild here in chapters 1 and 2, they're rebuilding the temple long before they get official word back from the Persian king that it's okay to do so. Now think about that for a second. They stopped because the political powers that be, the empire that could literally crush them again and take them back into exile, told them, stop. Now long before that king says, oh, you're right, go ahead and restart, they decide to start rebuilding the temple again. You see, sometimes the work of God means that you and I just simply have to cut against what our enemies want us to do. We just simply have to do the opposite of what any kind of earthly power wants the church to do. We actually have to act as if God is our king instead of earthly powers are our kings, right? So the church is courageous. Courage in this context. I want you to think a little bit about how this courage kind of works. <clears throat> Spiritual courage... Here's what I think it is in this context. Spiritual courage is transformative contribution. It is transformative contribution. So instead of accommodation, instead of assimilation, instead of weakness, instead of stepping back into the shadows and saying, you know what, you're right. Followers of Jesus Christ are transformed into the image of Christ and their lives now are guided by the principles of the kingdom of God. We've been transformed in the image of Christ instead of conformed to the image of this world. And so when we step out in courage, it's not anger, it's not hate, it's not aggressiveness, it's transformative contribution into this world. We have something to give to this world that can change this world, and it's called the kingdom of God, right? Listen to how Paul puts it when he writes to the Romans. The Christian church inside of Rome for a very long time was actually underground. The Christian church in Rome was famously, infamously the church that ended up inside of the Colosseums more often than not. The Christian church inside of Rome, these are the Christians who were accused by Nero of burning the city of Rome. And so Nero takes a bunch of Christians, puts them, some, puts them on pikes and lights them on fire in the streets of Rome. This is the church that Paul writes to, and he says this, Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Courage means being conformed to the image of Christ and then living that way. Living that way. So instead of passivity or uncritically accepting the ways of the world around us, the Christian learns how to be proactive, in finding the ways of God and learning how to obey and leading the way for other people. So those missionaries went to Korea not so that they could take on the gods of the nation of Korea and become like them, 
but so that they could introduce Christ to a brand new group of people, right? And yet the people of God, you go all the way back through the Old Testament, you make your way through the New Testament, you make your way back into headlines in the news today, the people of God tend to have this kind of habit of going ahead and adopting the idols and false gods and ways of the world around us so that we can go along to get along. Every time a reformer comes into the people of God in the Old Testament, they have to clean out all of these idols from their houses and from their high places and from their temples. Well, where did all of those idols come from in the first place? They came from all of the people around the nation of Israel. And Israel said, let us worship your gods. <laughs> Whereas instead of that, we need people who are conformed to the image of Christ. And worship Him alone. Guys, it takes more courage now. In our own way, in our own circumstance, it takes more courage now than it did 10 years ago to be a Christian in public in a lot of ways. At school, at work, wherever it is, you and I as followers of Jesus Christ, when you start asking questions like this, what is my transformative contribution to my context where God has put me what my education has prepared me for, what my family structure has placed me inside of. What is my transformative contribution to this world now? Because God has placed every one of us as ambassadors of the kingdom of God into our context, right? So what is our role in courage for Jesus Christ? As we read Haggai, in chapter 2, he uses that word remnant again. There's very few of you I know but God calls the remnant to courage. This relatively small group of people who've just simply decided to follow Jesus Christ no matter what. They've decided that the kingdom of God is the way to live, and those around me need to see the kingdom of God. So this is cool about the structure of what happens in Haggai. God didn't begin all of this, all of this renewal with the earthly powers that be. It didn't begin with a letter from the Persian king. It began with contractors and pastors, with Zerubbabel, with Joshua, with everyone else inside of that nation who raised farm animals and who baked bread and who laid foundations and who cut timber. That's how renewal begins. Wouldn't it be cool? the next renewal that we begin to see and hear and experience started amongst HVAC contractors. God does stuff like that, people. You remember Evan last week, the young kid who prays and changes whales and the rest of the world? He's a coal miner. God does stuff like this. What's my role? What's our role in what God wants to do? I ran across this sermon uh, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer this past week. I read part of it in our Tuesday night group. I want to read another part of it to you. But as a quick reminder, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian pastor who lived and, and worked inside of Germany during the rise of Nazism and Adolf Hitler in World War II. He made the conscious decision to stay inside of Germany and to help encourage the church, even as the Nazi regime was trying to take over the Church of Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer took part in one of the plans to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He got found out. He was thrown into concentration camps. And he was eventually hanged for his role in trying to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Well, Bonhoeffer is a courageous individual, and he did not like Adolf Hitler at all. And he didn't mind telling people so. So in the first sermon he preached, 
after Adolf Hitler came to power, he's talking to the church about courage in the face of overwhelming earthly power. And here's part of what that young pastor says. The call comes to our church. You are to set the people free, meaning the people of Germany. You are to set the people free from the chains of fear and cowardice and evil that bind them. What if we heard that as our call? The call comes to you and me this morning to set those around us free from the enemy that binds them. The call startles the church and troubles it profoundly. This church, without influence, powerless, undistinguished in every way, why is it the one to be burdened with this call? It looks at the apathy and the misery of those who are supposed to be listening. <laughs> He'd been a pastor for a while, and he knew what it was like, right? It looks at the apathy and the misery of those who are supposed to be listening and recognizes it is not equal to the task. But then suddenly, the call comes to us. Put an end to the bondage in which you are living. Put an end to the mortal fear that gnaws at you to the self-satisfied keeping to yourself. Put an end to your fear of other people and your vanity. Set yourself free. This call comes to the church. We may feel small to the task, but we belong to the Lord of hosts, right? So we've talked about courage. What is in Haggai's sermon the source of the Christian's courage. He says in verse 5, My spirit remains in your midst. It seems small and unpowerful to you, but my spirit remains in your midst. So what God does is He reminds them of a covenant, of His covenant that He made with them when He pulled them out of Egypt. He reminds them of a very old covenant, hundreds of years old by the time Haggai is preaching. And here's what he's referring to. Let's read it quickly. In Exodus chapter 29, God says this to his people. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. The point of recalling a covenant that is this old, is to emphasize the fact that God's word is always good. <laughs> it doesn't matter God stuck that covenant on the shelf and forgot about it and someone reminded him of it. He flipped through to, oh, that's right. I'm supposed to be your God. I'm supposed to be in your midst. Let's, let's go ahead and hit the reset button. That didn't happen. My spirit is among you because I told you, I promised you, I will always be your God. And guys, we can actually live on that promise. We can test that promise. We can lean in on that promise in obedience. We can make decisions in our lives based on the promise that God will forever be with his people. The very last thing Jesus tells his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew, the Great Commission, he says, look guys, all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So I need you to go make disciples of every nation on earth Teach them to obey everything I've told you to do, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. It doesn't matter what it looks like to us. It is filled with the Spirit of the Lord. 
So according to Haggai's sermon, what's going to result when God's call on his people is met with the courage of his people and is filled with the Spirit of God? What happens when that happens? He says this, and yet once more, I will shake the nations and I will fill my house with my glory. I love that. I will shake the nations. You guys have the Persian Empire hanging over your necks. But I'll tell you what, I am the Lord of all nations. (laughs) And when you are courageous and do what I've called you to do, I will shake the nations. And in that short little passage of Scripture, he says, I am the Lord of hosts five times. Isn't that cool? The Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies is on your side. Or better yet, we work and live and worship under the banner of the God of angel armies. This awesome power and glory that we see happened back then, God tells his people, it will happen again. And the next glory will be even better than the former glory. Oh, I like this sense, this phrase. God says, I will shake the nations. I love that thought. The first meaning to that phrase, I am going to shake the nations, is that his people have risen up and begun to follow him, do what he's empowered them to do, and it reestablishes their nation, and it puts down their enemies, and it changes the minds of kings, and nations are shook when God's people do what God has called them to do. And I think this is important. This is the other thing I wanted to say this morning. And you're thinking, you have said a lot of stuff to just get to two things today, right? But that's okay. Haggai says a sermon in nine verses that I can squeeze into 45 minutes. I just, that's just a gift that I have. God promises he's going to shake the nation, and here's part of what that means. God will wake his people up. I have been praying for this congregation for well over a year now. God laid something on my heart. I walk around the sanctuary. I walk through these pubes. I speak, some of your, I speak some of you by name before God. And he laid something on my heart. There are dormant gifts in this room. There are things that God has built you to do, created you to do, that we're just not doing. God will shake the nations, and he's going to begin by igniting the gift he's given you. He's anointed some of you to do something specific. I'm willing to bet that even some of you, as you hear this now, you know exactly what that is. God's going to wake his people up. This is how renewal will begin. As we begin to do the things that God has made us to do, equipped us to do, in the context in which he has put us, God will shake the nations when he wakes his people up. So God's people will do what God's called them to do. And then the other thing that this means is that Jesus is coming. (laughs) The Messiah is coming. I will shake the nations when my king shows up. Jesus came. We have the stories of the Gospels. And the world has never been the same since. And the promise is that Jesus is coming back again as king of kings and lord of lords. And all of the nations will come to him. Here's how Isaiah puts the same thought in Isaiah 60, the first three verses. Arise, shine, 
for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Jesus will come again. You guys, God has all the resources that he needs to renew, to equip, to empower his people to do exactly what he's called us to do. I own all the silver, he says. I own all the gold. The psalmist says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. (laughs) God lacks no resources, even in the face of whatever opposition there is. So what happens if our culture rises up against religious liberty? God is wiser and stronger, and you and I belong to the Lord of hosts anyway. What if our culture comes for the finances of churches and Christians? It's the stated goal of one of the candidates for president now. Well, God owns all the silver and gold and all the cattle that you can think of. That's okay. God will have his way anyway amongst his obedient children. What if our culture wants to silence the faithful Christian voice in the public square? which is, again, a stated value of many people in earthly power. Well, when that happens, here's what God does. God's Word rushes forward with so much speed and power that it shocks people. When earthly power tries to suppress the voice of the church in public, what happens is it spreads like brush fire underneath the tops of the trees. The Korean church is alive. The North Korean church is alive. They know Scripture better than any of us do. God's word will speed ahead, and those who want to hear it will hear it with a brand new power and clarity that they've never heard it with before. The latter glory will be great, he says. And Jesus will come, and Jesus will provide his people with a peace that passes all understanding. And our job, as we read Haggai, is to work for his glory, to pray for the Lord to come, and to learn to do that with courage in absolutely all that we do. Guys, let's pray.